The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies and may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Amen. You may be seated. Why is it that we have been going through this series on the greatest commandment? Because the temptation and common practice is to hear this law and others like it, you, may, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Um, loving your neighbor as yourself is the fulfilling of all the law. The temptation is to hear statements like that in our scriptures, to take our worldly cultural understanding of love, force it into that text, and then to say, therefore, I am fulfilling the law because I know what love is, And therefore, I am keeping the law because I am loving the way that I understand love to be. That is completely missing the point of these texts. These texts and the greatest commandment are summary texts meant to encapsulate the gist of God's law. As Jesus' own exposition of laws in the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount makes it clear that there is much more than what is just on the surface. Another example would be the statement that God is love. The common Western humanistic view, uh, that means everything being defined from the human perspective, is to put the emphasis on our understanding. We know what love is, so God must be that. This is why there is so much confusion inside and outside the church 
about who God is and what he wants from us. The point is that his people must take our directives from him. We must always begin with him. He defines what love is. A proper understanding of love is derived from his character, not ours. He defines the proper standard of righteousness, which we call law, also known as the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll return to this idea in a bit. Now, let's turn to examine our text for today. We are in Deuteronomy 6. The text, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, we're in the fourth of, or fifth, of these installments. Um, We've covered heart, soul, mind, and now we turn to strength. Now, first thing we must do is define what does this word mean. And so, without going too deep into the Hebrew... Um, this word is not the normal word that, a, that the Hebrew would, would use for strength, okay? The word um, is basically the word that means very or exceedingly, something with a great quantity or quality of some kind. So when we see at the end of Genesis 1, after creation, we see that the Lord saw that everything was very good. That word very is this word, the same word. Um, in Genesis 7, when it's, when it's reflecting on Noah and the flood account, the waters prevailed and increased greatly a lot on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily, same word, on the earth, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And so we're, we think of this as your very much, your excess. So, how do we understand this? Muchness, can we say that? Your muchness. Um, think about our, our, when we talk about sports, if you've ever been in sports, right, we, we talk about giving 110%, okay, notwithstanding that that's mathematical impossibility, but that's 110%. What does that mean? Another phrase, leave it all out on the field, leave it all out on the court, right? You're not, you're supposed to give every bit ounce of effort that you can possibly give and take nothing. When you come off of that field, when you come off of the court, you should be completely exhausted. That's good. That's what you should feel. Let's look at a couple of the context verses in, the, in Deuteronomy, basically spanning between Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 11. Um, this is Deuteronomy 4.9. Only take care, and remember, f- before, before I say this, in, you may have noticed in the Deuteronomy passage verses in the New Testament, when Jesus is quoting this, there's actually three words listed in the Hebrew. There's four words listed in the Greek, just to more fully encapsulate what's, what's going on here, just because differences of culture and understanding of what these words mean. So... The Hebrew, we're talking heart, soul, and strength. Only these three. Heart, soul, and strength. Mind is part of those. So, heart, soul, strength. Keep that in your mind while I'm reading these texts. Deuteronomy 4.9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart. 
and all the, day, all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Deuteronomy eleven thirteen. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. What do we see here? There's more, but I think you might get the picture. We see heart and soul, heart and soul, heart and soul repeated often. Why is strength missing? It would be my contention that strength is not missing from these texts. Strength is there. You hear it in these imperatives. Obey, walk, serve, repeated, keep my commandments. So, if we're talking about strength, if we're talking about might, we're talking about ability, effort, muchness, things that we contribute our entire lives and being to, what are, we, what are we moving towards? What are we pushing towards? What are we giving our effort to? To love the Lord your God with all your might is to love him with everything that you do. So what is that? Now, in order to define this, in order to properly understand this, it requires an understanding, a biblical framework for how to understand commands to obey, okay? And I think we'll talk about it later, later on, but I think you can understand why that might be the case based on whatever your own brain and heart are doing right now as I say, you must obey. As I read the text in the Old Testament, you must keep my word, you must keep my commandments, so, as we consider the Lord's command to love him with wholehearted obedience and service, we must step back for a bit to understand our obedience and specifics in light of the imperative to be holy as he is holy. For that, we must go all the way back to creation. So, let's go back to creation for a moment. Um, Genesis 1.27, how was man created? In the image of God. In the image of God, we were created, Adam and Eve, okay? What does that mean? Now, large topic, but to pare it down, I would con uh, contend that that means, that's a, a substitute for holiness, okay? The image of God is his character represented in us, okay? We're not omniscient, we're not omnipresent, anything like that, but his character represented within us, the moral law written on our hearts, Okay? We also call that holiness. Now, they're not identical, they're not synonyms for each other, but that's a good way to think of it, holiness. Now, uh, Genesis 1.28, the next verse, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, fill the earth with images of God displaying his glory. This is the purpose of man, that God in his love Overflowing creates mankind to cover the earth that he had created to fill it with his glory. Habakkuk 2, right? It's still there. The 
word of the Lord and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters on the ocean, right? This is not a, um, just an old idea. This is a common idea. This is God's desire to cover the earth with his glory, which is his holiness as it represents his character. Now, I want you to notice here that the command for the purpose came before the command for holiness. The command for Adam to go forth, subdue the earth, fill it, multiply, came before the command to obey by uh, not eating of the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Why? Again, because the moral law is written on Adam's heart. He displayed, he was created in the image of God, so he already had God's holiness within him. Okay? And so, then we see um, that Adam's purpose came before the command for holiness because holiness was built into Adam with God's image. Now, it's here that I need to introduce a concept to you that may or may not be a new thing for you called the covenant of works. Now, we're not going to go into this, but basically the idea is do this and you will live. Don't do this and you die. Okay? This is what was given to Adam. Do this and live, don't do this and die. This is what we call the covenant of works that God made with Adam and through Adam all mankind. Now, through the fall, we know, those of you that have been reading your Bible, that have been here in the church, God's image is torn in man. Created in God's image, but it's torn because of disobedience. Uh, God's image, image or the summation of his character, which we call holiness, is the bond between God and man. This is what gives us communion with him as we share in holiness. As Adam and Eve and us by extension choose to determine good and evil for themselves instead of depending on God's standard of righteousness, they sever themselves from this holiness, shattering his image within. Now, again, big categories here, okay? But we're created to be holy as he is holy, display his holiness around the earth. Now, through the fall, obviously, that does not happen because it's torn. But the rest of the story of redemption is God's enactment of the plan to return his people to a full state of unity and glory with him by paying the debt they had incurred against him and by restoring his image within them in order to bring them into full fellowship and glory. Holiness is important. This is also the context of Deuteronomy. Moses is teaching Israel what it means to be God's chosen people. They're about to go into the promised land, and they haven't exactly been obedient and faithful. And so he is teaching the people of God what it means to be the people of God as they enter into the promised land. Now, I don't think that I need to convince you that the Lord desired for his people to be holy and obedient to his law before Christ. But how should we think about this as a people under the new covenant, the new covenant under Christ? First, does God desire or even require that his people are holy under the new covenant? Let me bring before you 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and we're quoting, Peter's quoting Leviticus 11, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Okay? Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, uh, we can also think of um, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, a stand-in for holiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, they shall see God. Now, if you think about what paradise, what heaven is going to be like, what the new creation is going to be like. We are dwelling, there's no sun and moon because God in his holiness is the light. We are dwelling in holiness. How would we expect to be there if we ourselves are not holy? Now, again, as we started, we're talking about loving the Lord your God with all of your strength and all that you do. So we're talking about obedience, among other things. So we needed to understand that obedience is part of our holiness. This is what it means to be holy as God is holy, at least in one facet, a big facet, is to obey his commands. How often have we heard that, that uh, command, if no other time, than this morning? So what about obedience? Does God expect us to obey? Does God require us to obey under the new covenant? 1 John uh, chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, good, belief. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Great. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Did you hear that? This is is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you see how John is intermingling the two? Faith. Belief, obedience to his commandments. What about Jesus? Surely the meek and mild Jesus will give us some relief from this requirement of obedience. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He's saying, me and the Father, we're on the same page. Obedience to our word is required. By the way, if you are a Trinitarian Christian, Jesus was not separate from the Father in creating the Old Testament law. Jesus was with him, in agreement with him. What about Paul? Mr. Saved by grace alone through faith alone. Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow this law, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, 
Don't miss that. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I'll admit, when I used to read this verse, the works that God had prepared beforehand, I used to think that that was some kind of like, um, God had this like list of things that I needed to do, and I had to figure out a way to discover what's on that list. That list is somewhere out in the ethos, but I need to discover what that is, and I need to do those because I clearly I need to do them. But what works, what good works has God prepared beforehand? He has already given us his standard of righteousness. Now we, of course, we've got to thread this line. You heard it in those three verses, by grace, through faith, not your own doing, gift of God, not by works, but we are his workmanship. We're prepared We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, let us return to our original text and try to tie all of this together. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your might, strength, ability, muchness, everything that you do? We have seen the necessity of holiness very briefly, but we've seen it in the people of God as they reflect his image. We have seen the necessity of obedience to his law as a function of that holiness. And I want you to hear this again before I go any further. Because again, it is crucial that we draw this line where the Bible draws the line. We're familiar with this passage in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, and this is the part that a lot of people forget, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is working involved, but there is God working in you things that you can't do. In Deuteronomy itself, Deuteronomy 30, God says, when you repent, I will circumcise your heart. Is that something that the Israelites were good at? No. Is that something that we're good at? No. That is God's work. Now, We have to apply this. And then we're going to talk about some of the pitfalls of this line of thinking that we all fall into. And we must press on in the fight of faith. Do you think about your faith as a fight? We say struggle. But do you think about your faith as a fight? I want you to listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. It's a little bit of an extended quote, so bear with me. The first thing I have to say is this. True Christianity is a fight. True Christianity. 
Let us mind that word true. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. It is not the real thing which was called Christianity 1,800 years ago. By the way, he was writing this in the mid-19th century. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable, but it is certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. It is not the religion which produces real holiness. True Christianity is a fight, end quote. Now, I want us to look at four metaphors which the New Testament employs to convey our duty as followers of Christ. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, and the builder. First, the soldier. 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Think of a soldier, whether you have military experience or not. You can imagine you have one duty. You have one line of authority that's telling you, instructing you exactly what you should do. Now, where is your faith when you're doing that? In the one commanding you. Think about Ephesians 6 and the armor of God. It has often been said that this is an image of a common Roman soldier, what, what Paul is describing there. The armor of God that we are putting on, why? Because we are fighting principalities, the Lord, the prince of the power of the air. It is a fight. Think about Romans 8. The great Romans 8 and all of the wonderful gospel-saturated promises, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is only about a dozen verses later. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's very little ambiguity there. I stumbled across recently in, in, in Judges 3, just one of those things that read the Bible over and over and over and over, and you always, always will find things that are edifying to your soul. In Judges 3, um, the author is summarizing basically the state after the book of Joshua when, when Israel was going in and taking over the land, destroying the Canaanites. Judges starts by basically saying it didn't go well. They didn't finish the job. Now, 
These, this is Judges 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left. The Lord left them there, left the Canaanites there, didn't make a complete end to the Canaanites. Why? To test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. When you read Romans 7 and you read about the turmoil in Paul as he wrestles, he said, in my heart I serve the law of Christ, I serve Christ, but in my flesh, my flesh is warring against me, is battling, is wants to take over. That's war. And it's only the next verse, very first verse, again, in chapter 8, where there's no condemnation. But that doesn't mean the war is over. We know the end of the war, but we're still battling. We are soldiers in this fight. Next metaphor is the athlete. Again, back in 2 Timothy 2, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. We've been given rules. We have marching orders as a soldier, right? But we have rules as a runner in a race. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that all in a race, or in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an unperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. We don't just fight anybody just for the heck of it, just because we want to be antagonistic. But I discipline my body. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Third metaphor, the farmer. Agricultural, uh, agrarian society, farmer uh, analogies and farming um, analogies abound. Second Timothy 2, again, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Key adjective, hardworking farmer. What about Jesus? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's moving forward all the time. We've, given, we've been given marching orders. We move forward all the time. Back to 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So the Lord is controlling this process. What is the process? Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the growth. God's working in it. So neither he he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. But we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
which leads us to our final metaphor, the building, the builder. 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is the only cornerstone for our foundation. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, the testing proves the foundation. The testing proves the foundation. But... There is work to be done. There is building that needs to happen on the foundation itself. Again, are we to build in whatever way that, we're, that we want? Well, that looks nice. Let's add that to the house. Clearly, no. Which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has, had an, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise... When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, notice again the war analogy, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, now listen to this. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What is the purpose of these things? These are people that have a goal and they have a, they're singular in focus. They have a goal. They know and they believe that what they are doing is for a purpose and will result in a, in a, in a good result. Now, I said we were going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the warnings here. If warning bells are going off in your head about legalism, we're going to talk about it. The temptation is to hear all of this about loving God with all that we do and to fall into two ways of carnal thinking. The first, we're going to, we're going to get to legalism, but I want to talk about something um, to call antinomianism. Antinomianism. $4 word, go impress your friends. Antinomianism. Anti against. Gnome would be the law. Against the law. Antinomianism. Rejecting the law of God as a rule for your life. An example of this is that I've seen personally. Substituting passion for holiness. Substituting passion for holiness. What antinomianism does is it detaches the law of God from the love of God. This is why it is so important to be able to say with Psalm 119 that you love the law of the Lord. Because the law is a function of the Lord's character. 
If you don't love the law, you don't love the Lord. I'm going to say it again. If you don't love the law, you don't love the Lord. If God were your father, Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. He's saying this to Jews. Jews who had received the law and hear it weekly, if not should be more. So they're, you know, and I, the idea, at least, is that they're worshiping the Father, they're worshiping God. If, you, if God were your Father, if you were born of God, you would love me, Jesus Christ, for I came from God and I am here. It's not two different things. We are not justified by the law, but neither are we free from it in regards to our righteousness. Justified by grace through faith, but sanctified in righteousness. Sanctified in righteousness. What is the answer to this? What is the answer to antinomianism? Romans 6, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? You know the answer. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free, um, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. Now, we're going to pivot and we're going to talk about legalism, okay, and how the gospel speaks to legalism. But these are not two different things. These are not, some people swing the pendulum this way, some people swing, swing the pendulum this way. These are two sides of the same coin. And maybe you can see that in a moment. What is legalism? It's justifying yourself by the law separated from the love of God. Justifying yourself by works of the law. Very clear that that is not the case. Very clear. Justifying yourself. Now, it can look different than, say, Jews 2,000 years ago. Or Orthodox Jews now. So how are these two sides of the same coin? Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What was the temptation for Eve? How did Satan tempt Eve? By drawing a line to his character and saying, he doesn't really want you to have this. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't love you. The law is there, but he doesn't love you. So Eve, making that connection, separating the love of God from the law of God, is now saying, well, that's just a law, and I'm not going to do that. That's legalism. So what did that force her to do? Reject it altogether. Antinomianism. Two sides of the same coin. They're both at work in us all the time, in our flesh. 
Is it possible to justify yourself by the law? If you have read any of Paul's letters, you should know immediately that the answer is no. However, we try to do this all of the time, but with our own laws. As we have seen, man created in the image of God is meant to reflect his character of holiness. This is seen in the perfect law of the Lord. Every human being knows that we must have a standard by which to judge good from evil. Every human being knows that. Therefore, the garden story plays out again and again and again and again. Will you live by the law of the Lord or will will you determine your own law? The defining characteristic of the law of works is this statement again, do this and live. How many times do we hear or believe something to that effect? If you truly want to be righteous, then this is what you must do. The law of presentism. Be on the right side of history. The law of anti-racism. Judge everyone by the color of their skin while condemning the act of judging people by the color of their skin. The law of tolerance. Tolerate everyone and everything, for this is the essence of true love. As I tell my wife all the time, I tolerate you so much. The law of niceness. Be nice above all else, and anything that's not nice is condemned. The law of unity. If we can just be unified, we can accomplish anything, as the Tower of Babel illustrates. The law of humanism. Making other people feel good about themselves is the ultimate good in life. The law of autonomy. Anything you do is permissible as long as you don't infringe on what I want to do, including redefining reality itself. The question is not whether or not we will have a law, but which law we will have. We obey the law of the God we love. We obey the law of the God we love. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. False gospels are so because they are founded upon a false law. It is only God's perfect law that not only sets the standard of righteousness by which no person, sinful person, may be seen as righteous, but also provides atonement for anyone who, by faith, humbles themselves as wicked sinners before Almighty God and receives salvation from his own hand. The law of Christ which is referred to in Galatians 6.2, the law of Christ is the only law that says, live and do this. You see the difference. Covenant of works again. Do this and live. Through Christ, thanks be to God, our orders are live and do this. Lazarus, come out. Now, take the the cloth of death off from around him. There is a particular order, and we must get that correct. Listen to this warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice that the workers of lawlessness in this warning are doing many mighty works. Jesus neither concedes nor argues the point. He simply calls them workers of lawlessness whom he never knew. What is the point? That those who know God in Christ, who truly know him, will love his law and will keep it. If you don't want the holiness of God, then you don't want Christ. If you don't seek after the holiness of God, then you don't seek after Christ. If you don't desire the holiness of God, then you don't desire Christ. If you don't work for the holiness of God, then you don't work to know Christ. And if you don't strive for the holiness of God, then you don't strive for Christ. The holiness of God is the bond of our unity with him. Turn to Christ. Live and serve him with all that you are. Flee from the ways of this world and of your own flesh that seeks by any means possible to throw off the master's authority, rejecting both him and his ways. Work, strive, run, war, put to death, confess, repent, suffer, be strong and courageous, minister, serve, fear not the world, fear God, discipline yourself, Receive the Lord's discipline, believe, love with the love of God, and rejoice. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Father, I pray that the truth of your gospel would settle mightily on our hearts. That as Paul introduces himself at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, that his calling is to bring about the faith or the obedience of faith. That we would walk in obedience to you. That we would put our sin to death. That we would war against the principalities, our flesh, against the world and against Satan himself, not using the tools and the weapons of this world, but using your tools, your weapons. You have given us your word. May we conform ourselves to Christ. Conform ourselves to him, not just in name, not to take the Lord's name in vain, to take his name and to be as he is, to live as he did. 
and to confess our sin, to be constantly repenting of our sin and our depravity as we seek to be holy as you are holy. We are not perfect. We are not and will not be sinless this side of eternity, this side of the purification of death. But Father, you have called us to pursue it, to pursue it with all of our might, all of our strength, all of our ability to serve you without restriction. Let us throw aside every sin and every weight of this world and run the race that you have put before us. It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.